Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to seek alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So if you will remember, one of the Luke's main themes here is to show that what happened to Jesus is now what's happening to his disciples. That the people who were part of Jesus's core team are now the ones who are continuing his work. And here we have the first healing. And Luke uses language very similar here in Acts 3. It's very similar to the healing language that one finds in the Gospel of Luke. And you have Jesus looking at people straight in the face, looking at them in the eye, asking them what they want, engaging in conversation with them. If you'll remember the way Jesus treats the lame or the beggar or the outsider, the ones who are considered not human by the society around them, really, that's how Jesus approaches them. He looks them in the eye. He gives them a voice. There's a a sense of agency or empowerment around the way Jesus treats people. And often he asks people, what do you want me to do for you before he heals them? And here you see that Peter and John are engaged in some similar activity towards this lame man. They direct their gaze at him, they look him full in the face, and they engage him in conversation. Verse 6 is good here because the name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by which the lame man is raised. We're going to see how The name of Jesus is becoming an important movement here in the book of Acts. What happens to the name of Jesus is important. And we might be tempted because we have 2,000 years of familiarity breeding contempt or familiarity dulling us to the fact that we take it for granted that the name of Jesus is the name above all other names and that one can pray in the name of Jesus or one can bless or heal in the name of Jesus. And Christians quite naturally think that by doing something in the name of Jesus, they are doing that in the name of God. And if you press the Christian a little bit further, they would quite rightfully admit they don't really understand how the Trinity works and how Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father can be the same being. But they would say, well, we believe that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, and that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. They would say something like that. But we take it for granted that the name of Jesus is to speak with the name of the Lord. But this is a development. This took some time. It hasn't always been that case. And partly in the book of Acts, you're watching it happen. You see it happening in the Gospels as well. There is a development from Jesus's identity as a prophet and a teacher and some kind of rebel, all the way up to Jesus being my Lord and my God, as Thomas says. 
at the end of John, and there's similar movements in the Gospel of Luke. But part of the story of Acts is the story of the name of Jesus becoming the thing that motivates or covers over everyone else. And it's uh, part of the identity, the divine identity of, of God or of Jesus as God. And here it's the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It's, it's, this is always a reminder of the incarnation. Remember that the Antichrist is not some mythic, moustache-twirling, monstrous figure in the New Testament. The Antichrist doesn't show up in the book of Revelation, for example. The Antichrist shows up in John's letters, where the Antichrist is simply the one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. That's who the Antichrist is. That's what Antichrists are. And there's more than one mentioned in the New Testament. So here, when we pay attention to things like Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One of God, of Nazareth. There's a, a rooting, an anchoring of Jesus in a location, a time, and a place. And this is important to the New Testament to make sure that they don't uncouple Jesus the divine Lord of all and beginner of new creation and Holy Spirit movement across the land. That Jesus is also the Jesus of Nazareth with a skin tone and an accent and a hometown, and mothers, and brothers, and sisters, etc. And so then Peter takes the lame man by the right hand and raises him up, and immediately his feet and ankles are made strong. And leaping up, he stands and begins to walk, and enters the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Again, I've pointed this out before, but temple is still a feature in the early Christian form of life. Temple participation, the temple was a place to be. It was not a place that the early Christians thought was excluded to them. And in fact, the exclusion of Christians in the temple will, well, you start to see the, the, the shades of it here, that the temple is not always a welcome place for Christ followers, that's for sure. And likewise, the synagogues are not always a welcome place. But they are not across the board blanket prohibition for Christians. That happens later, and that happens around the time when the temple is destroyed in AD 70, and the division between Christians and Jews becomes much more pronounced, and we start to see curses against Christians trying to attend synagogues come out in Jewish literature from the 70s and 80s. But at this stage, when the book of Acts is, well, the events that the book of Acts is recording the temple is not off-limits, and the synagogues are not off-limits. In fact, they are always the first port of call for any Christian, and the temple in Jerusalem is still the natural home for Peter and John and the others who are in the shade of the temple or in the portico when they do their meetings. In any case, the man leaps up, and he's praising God. He's leaping and praising God, which again has shades of the type of people that Jesus healed and what happened to them as well. Similar language. Luke uses the same language for the disciples' actions in Acts as he does for Jesus' actions in his gospel. And then the people recognize him and they're filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They're amazed and awed. If you'll remember that when Jesus speaks and does things in the gospels, the people are always amazed or astonished. And here they are amazed and astonished at Peter and John, 
While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico, astounded, again, that word, astounded or amazed. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out the clung word in verse 11, which again, we're going to see this later on when Paul and Barnabas come to a Gentile city and they do a miracle. The, there's some interesting events here. Do you remember we often talk about how miracles will often lead to offence? But they don't have to lead to offence. I wouldn't want to overemphasise the offensive nature of miracles. What a miracle does is it's a line in the sand. And one can choose to be offended or one can choose to be associated with the miracle worker. And I guess that's the point I want to keep making here is that the miracles don't force somebody to follow you. What they do is they put a shine, a, a highlight, they shine a, a spotlight onto you forcing everyone to look and now they have to make a choice and sometimes they make choices to cling to Peter and John or the disciples or Jesus and sometimes they choose to try and send them away but here the man and the people are running to John and Peter and so he's drawn a crowd and so then we get another sermon from Acts verse 12 onwards and when Peter saw it he addressed the people Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And now we're going to start to see again theology coming in after the fact. This was not a case of Peter giving his sermon about the identity of Jesus. And we're going to unpack it here. And there's quite there's some good stuff happening in this sermon. But note the order of it. Peter didn't start with the sermon about Jesus's identity and likewise Luke doesn't arrange his material whether or not Peter said this actually word for word or this was just something that Peter would have said or was like the kinds of things that Peter said again there's evidence here of editing Luke is editing his text he's putting in blocks of sermons he's putting in blocks of narrative in order to tell a story and part of the theology of the gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts is the way he edits it and Luke decides time and time again to put the events and the practices first and the theology second. The theology explains and describes and puts into context what has just happened. The theology does not lead, it's not the catalyst for the event, it's the explanation after the fact but we do have both. It's not just a random man who's walking. Peter and John say, look, no, this happened not because of us, but because of. And now they say, how did we make him walk? Men of Israel, why do you stare at us? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Note what's going on here. They raise the man, the lame man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The crowd comes running. It's in a temple, so they're all Jewish, they're all pious. And Peter begins his sermon or his theological explanation by beginning with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the well-known name for God. For everybody believed in God. All right. There's no secular materialist atheist 
living in the first century. Everybody believes in God. And the question is not, do you believe in God? It's, how do you name your God? How do you identify your God? What God do you worship? What God are you following? And for the Jews, the name of the God is, oh, it's the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers. That's how you name God. Another way of saying is the God who rescued his people from Egypt. This is another formulation for, well, whoever it was that rescued the Israelites from Egypt, that is our God. And that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a constant attempt to define or or not explain, but identify God. So just saying, I believe in God is not enough. The next thing you have to say is, well, what God? And they say, well, the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob followed, that's my God. And this is the God that rescued Israel from the Egyptians. So this is the name of God, or this is the identifier of God. And Peter and John start with this, and they root Jesus. They're going to root Jesus in this story. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So there's the insertion there of a bit of socio-political context. Pilate gets mentioned and all the angry crowds and violence that was surrounding the crucifixion is not separate from the story and name of Jesus. But note what's happening here. We begin with the God of Abraham and Isaac. Jesus gets introduced as some sort of servant, verse 13, and then 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one. Okay. Do you remember that we spoke in the very first session about the different titles that Luke uh, focuses on? And one of the titles that Luke focuses on for Jesus is that he's the holy and righteous one, or he's the holy and innocent one. And the innocent uh, one is, is somebody that Luke puts a lot of effort into demonstrating comes from Isaiah, comes from the Old Testament, from various prophetic material. And then he identifies Jesus with that. And uh, just as a spoiler alert, the disciples are also going to be associated with being the holy and innocent one. Stephen is going to come up very soon. In any case, right now it's Jesus who we're being reminded that he is the holy and innocent one. He's the holy and righteous one foretold by the prophets. So Jesus enters the story as a servant and now he's very quickly identified as the holy or the the set apart and innocent one. But you asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. Do you remember Barabbas, the Sicarii, the, the freedom fighter who killed Jews seen to collaborate with Rome? That's who Barabbas killed. He was a political assassin. And uh, Peter is here reminding the people, that's who you wanted. You didn't want Jesus. You wanted that guy, that freedom fighter. So you killed the author of life. Now, that's an interesting title. Notice the elevation of the titles here. Within a few verses, we have servant, holy, righteous one. And now we have the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The author of life is part of the imagery of Jesus as, as being more than just a king or a ruler or a clever speaker. right? He's not just a rabbi who beats everybody in an argument. He's also the author of life. He's, 
To be in his movement is to be part of the recreated world. Jesus is always connected to creation. The Holy Spirit is always connected to an agent of creation. Here we're having a window into the early Christian, like the earliest Christian imagination of Jesus. Again, it always bears saying the common sense, totally common sense. It makes a lot of sense to say Jesus was a normal man, a good teacher, and centuries after his death, his followers started to add the divine attributes to him. And that the divine Jesus that we now see being worshipped in churches is not the first people who knew Jesus would have never thought that about him. This is the, the argument. And they say it took generations or it took a couple hundred years of uh, myth making and legendary stories to create the divine superhuman Jesus that we now know. Which I say is common sense. It makes a lot of it's reasonable to say that. The only problem is, is that it goes against our own evidence, literary evidence. Now, look, you might not believe this doesn't prove. Acts doesn't prove that Jesus was God. None of this will prove anything. You're not going to convince Richard Dawkins that Jesus was God because Acts said so. But what you can say is, yeah, but the earliest Christian documents we have written within living memory of Jesus portray him as the author of life. Speak about him as if he is God. Give him names that only belong to Yahweh. So you might not believe that Jesus was God, but the Christians that knew Jesus and who knew the people that knew Jesus, they did. And here we go. Jesus is now associated with the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Remember the word witness is an important title for early Christians for disciples, this is basically what they called themselves. This was their self-identity. It was, we are witnesses. This was what Matthias had to be when he got uh, elected to join the ranks of the apostles in Acts 1. You had to be a witness, not only to the resurrection of Jesus, but to the life that he lived, which got killed and then got resurrected. And there's a hint of that here when Pilate gets mentioned and the, the angry crowd that wanted to kill Jesus. Again, there's, the resurrection is not a contextless miracle. It's always rooted in Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed by the Pilate and killed by the temple and the crowd. You killed him, but then God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, or by association, allegiance to this name, has made this man strong, made the, ma the lame man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus, or that is it located in Jesus, has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. Look what has happened here. The name of Jesus has now become the name by which the new generation has come, the new creation has come, healing and redemption has come. We began this little sermon by naming the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we end by naming Jesus of Nazareth as God. The theologian Robert Jensen is well worth looking at. And he's very good about this, about the, the development of the name of God. And God for the Hebrews is God is whoever it is who rescues Israel 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for the Christians, there's a new addition. God is whoever it is who rescued Israel from Egypt and who raised Jesus from the dead. And it is by that name that you have been saved. And they then apply the name of Jesus to that God who raised Jesus. There's an identification of Jesus with the power of his own resurrection, which is Trinitarian. And by the way, the power of resurrection is the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of creation. So we're starting to see a Trinitarian imagination, even if it's not explicitly mentioned it's so much in the book of Acts. The Trinitarian formulations and the wrangling, which so many people can find unedifying. There is a lot of theological heat, but little light around the early Trinitarian debates, I'll admit. Not always. Some of this stuff is really good and life-giving, but it can be easy for non-specialists to just throw their hands up in the air and say, a pox on all your houses. What are you doing? What a waste of time. But a lot of that debate over the exact nature of the Trinity and of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and who came first and what's their relationship to each other, all these creedal debates are not inventing the Trinity. They are just trying to articulate what has already been in operation in the church for centuries. So by the time we get the creedal formulations, what we're seeing is the articulation of something that has already been in existence. And we're seeing the fruits or the roots of that here in places like Acts. And it's by this name that the man has been healed. Let's look at verse 16. Some of you might not have been listening to the Gospel of Mark episodes. And if so, then I will just have to quickly explain here that the word faith is an important word. And here there's faith in his name or faith in Jesus which gets mentioned twice in the next couple of verses here. The word faith is pistos, and pistos means allegiance. It doesn't mean a, a, a mental assent to a series of propositions. It doesn't mean wishing hard enough or visualizing in your mind's eye what it is that you want and not allowing any doubt to creep in. The word pistos has much more to do with a willingness to be seen to be with Jesus, or an affiliation with him and his movement. There's a movement of leaving your old allegiances and coming to Jesus. So your faith in Jesus, or the faith of Jesus, is the allegiance of Jesus, the allegiance and, the, and patriotism even to him and his movement. And this is the attitude that Jesus says heals people again and again, in the gospel, he says, your faith has healed you, or he commends them for their faith, which is essentially their willingness to leave all they have and come and follow him, or to face the mockery of the crowd, or the danger, the inherent danger of following Jesus. And they, they do that anyway, and Jesus looks at them and commends them for their faith. And so when you have faith in someone, it's you trust them. You don't understand them. You might not, we often see this, the disciples don't understand Jesus. They don't have any ability to explain him they're not visualizing what he's doing very clearly but they're still said to have faith in him when they are with him when they say we don't understand what's going on but we want to be with you and they are said to have faith and this is what's happening here 
in Acts, that the name of Jesus now is being introduced into an environment. And much like the miracles and the signs and wonders are a catalyst or a sign in, line in the sand, the name of Jesus is now this line in the sand. It gets dropped like a brick into a pond and it causes lots of upset. And you have to decide, what do you do now? Am I offended by this name or do I have faith in this name? Do I turn away from Jesus and his people, who are now represented by Peter and John and the disciples? Or do I get over my fear and my social fear of what others will think and decide to affiliate myself with the name of Jesus and Peter and John and the other disciples? Much like this lame man has done. Verse 17, and now brothers, he relates, Peter refers to everyone watching as brothers. Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The, uh, the prophetic or the, the expectation that the anointed one is going to suffer is again one of the themes of the identity of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He's the suffering servant. And how we know there's some um, Isaiah has a couple of chapters of some famous chapters in Isaiah about the suffering servant. But it's more than just the literal predictions of a suffering servant that the New Testament is referring to. When it talks about these things, it's, it's also talking about the fact that the prophets of God, the people sent to speak the words of God into places of power, they always get oppressed. They always get silenced. They suffer. They're not welcome. And this is part of the history that the book of Acts is linking Jesus to. They're saying he's one of these. And then it, it mentions them all, right? So Christ suffers in verse 18. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Change your hearts and your minds. Repent means turn away. Turn away from your old habits of life and affiliations. Again, you need to turn away from something in order to come into faith. So you say no to the past allegiances and you come into allegiance to Jesus. Turn away that your sins may be blotted out, that you may be back on target. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you're with the Lord, you will be refreshed. And again, notice that the Lord and the name of Jesus are now being associated with each other. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So that Jesus has, has not there physically. We've already met his ascension, so we know that he's gone physically. And here there's a little suggestion here. Peter is just acknowledging that fact. That we are still gathering in the name of Jesus, even if he's not physically with us, it, until such time as everything will be restored. And then there's this reference here to the holy prophets of long ago, and you get Moses, who says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Verse 22, and here again now, is the identity of Jesus as a prophet like Moses, which was one of the themes that I mentioned in the first episode. So here we're seeing, we've met the suffering servant, we've met, met the innocent righteous one and we now have met the one the prophet like Moses and of course Moses 
the Israelites rebelled against him. They grumbled against him. And Moses, Jesus is a prophet like Moses in that way, in that he does not receive a 100% adulation from the people he's been sent to be with, the stiff-necked people. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, to the one like Moses, shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. This isn't fire and brimstone type prophecy. What this is, is the vision of salvation in the book of Acts is one of leave your destructive ways. Your destructive ways are what is killing you. It's not if you... If you disobey Jesus, then you will be zapped by some judge figure. It's you are currently zapped right now by your own life. Your life is killing you. Repent, turn away and come to the new life and you'll get refreshing. You'll get healing. You'll be part of new creation. You will start to live without fear and, and there'll be no want amongst you and everyone will share what they have with each other because they're not scared about what tomorrow will bring. There will be healing. The life of the Jesus person, the life around the Jesus person is this kind of life. It's a restoration of the kingdom type life. And if you don't live it, if you don't believe the prophet, if you don't have faith in the prophet and don't want to be seen to be with him, then you're going to live the life of destruction that you have already wallowed in and you will be destroyed. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. Jesus is one of a long line of prophets trying to woo people away from their destructive and arrogant and smug assumptions. By the way, the people that the prophets were speaking to are all priests and kings and people who think they've got it sorted and think they are living as God's people. This isn't rebellious pagans here. This is rebellious religious people who are living a life of destruction. And now you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Peter is saying, look, you, you can choose. You can be a son of the prophet. You could be a son of perdition. You could be a son of a, of a world that is leading to destruction. Or you could be the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with the forefathers. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Look at that, verse 25. We now have, in a microcosm, the sermon, and one of the very first sermons he's, that Peter has preached. He started by preaching to the people of Jerusalem after the Pentecost and the tongues. And now he's doing another sermon in which he begins by evoking the name, the Jewish identity of God, introduces Jesus, elevates the name of Jesus to the place of God, uh, relates Jesus as a prophet like Moses who is going to redeem his people if they would only follow him they would be redeemed and now he's saying you can also be with this person you could be a son of this prophet and your offspring will go to all the families of the earth which of course is the promise to Abraham of the star, you'll have offspring greater than the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. But it's a global encompassing vision. It's much bigger than just the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the vision begins with Jesus of Nazareth, 
a real place, a located geographical space, but it becomes one of international encompassing. It becomes one of bigger than just one type of ethnic uh, tribe or land. It's inviting the people to join a story that's a lot bigger and richer than they thought it was. It's starting to say, look, the ends of the earth are going to be changed. Come and join us. And whether the people are able to resist the lure of nationalism and ethnic tribalism, and whether they're going to die to that and come into the life and the kingdom of Christ, remains to be seen. And we'll look at that in chapter 4, next episode. Welcome back to our fourth and final debrief session on the book of Acts and of our study. Now, you'll notice, however, that the book of Acts goes on for a lot longer than four chapters. So what we're doing, friends, is that we are putting all the rest of the Acts Bible studies into the Patreon account. So if you go to, uh, to the Tent Theology Patreon page, for as little as $5 or £5 a month, you can become a patron of the Tent Theology podcast. And one of the things that you get, apart from the warm, fuzzy feelings of letting this podcast continue and lurch forward into history, and we get to keep making these things because of you, the other thing that you get is every week you get Bible studies, interviews, bonus material, and all sorts of other goodies that are for the patrons of Tent Theology. So many thanks to all those of you who are patrons. Your support really helps us pay the costs for keeping this thing going. And uh, if you are thinking of becoming a patron of Tent Theology, this is a good time to do it because this is the last of the Acts studies that are going to be on the podcast proper and the rest are going behind the Patreon wall. So with that in mind, I am glad to welcome Natasha Beckles and Christopher Marchand, uh, my two friends who are helping me debrief and talk through some of these acts things. Now, Chris, Natasha, we started to chat uh, about this and I said, stop, stop, save it for the podcast. Save it. Chris started to tell us something. So Chris, you've got something that's exciting you. Go on, tell us <laughs> what is this about Acts 3 that was getting you excited and interested? Yeah, so so it was it was refreshing. You know, I, I always like to imagine myself there with Peter, you know, hearing the words and how would I have received them? He was speaking of something very very particular, very localized, this Jesus, who he then calls the author of life. And you talk about that a little bit. Uh, over the last few years, I've, I've seen, you know, the concept or the, the, the understanding of this, there's this word thrown about. I've heard it come from Richard Rohr, even as a book. It's called the, the Cosmic Christ or the Universal Christ. And I think a lot of people have been wrestling with their faith or they've come, they've moved into a, a post-religious or post-Christian phase and they go, well, you know, that there is a Christ within, a Christ of the cosmos that's leading us to God, almost, almost of Christ as more of a metaphor. And thus, you know, what, you know, to, to claim Christianity as an exclusive religion, that's too tribalistic, that's too exclusive. And uh, so really aren't all religions, you know, pointing to the same thing. They're all, they're all sharing the same message. Yeah. You know, just how do we get to God, have love towards each other, those types of things. And I, 
I understand the concept. I've conversed with a lot of people about it. I just don't think Peter would let us off the hook that easily. Uh, I, you know, I, I think I do believe in a universe in a universal Christ in that sense, but it was that guy. <laughs> it, it was Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, it, it was him. Uh, and so I, I guess I'm really maybe I feeling the tension of like this understanding of metaphor as of Jesus as a metaphor when I'm like, nah, he was here. And if we don't believe that, well, you know, so I, I, I just hear, I hear the challenge. I think, I think there's something political in that though, which is in, in, in our, in our modern times, it's harder and harder for people to believe something so specific, something so localized that they have to, they, they feel like they want to universalize it in that sense. I was just curious if you had any insights into that. Have you come across the universal cosmic Christ ideas, Natasha? What is this? Is this yes, yes. Um, I, I'm not long out of um, Bible college, so we did spend a bit of time um, looking at Rowan Williams and Michael Jagastar, and you know, I, it, it 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 is one of those things that I suppose I'm coming from it, and and I can remember writing an essay talking about it that we look at the kind of universe that the finality of Christ and things like that and I say that as if that's a minor <laughs> but it's massive things like, like that <laughs> you, you know you can't even fit it into your head what it is but I'm very much I, I think I'm very I have a, a, a strong theology of creation of Christ's role in creation and that actually there's all things in you know creation that can be guiding you towards who God is but you have you do have to get to a point that he was a real man, and what does that mean for you? That I that there has to be that conversation at that point. But I I personally know people who have asked Jesus into their life, ended up following another religion, and I can still see Jesus working in their life. So he, he in the terms of that he he I see him as you know that image of him walking across the waters and I see that image of him walking across all philosophies and all he's a but he didn't come to create another religion but equally all of those and, and I'm really interested in what happens when Jesus is allowed to jump into every religious perspective cultural perspective so far you've got Judaism you have got um you know Greco-Roman culture and we more recently are getting the opportunity to see what um, Christianity looks like when it becomes indigenous to a community. And I think that there is this fragmentation of what, who and what Christ is that is scattered in every human culture because all things came through Christ. Therefore, his fingerprint is there and you're going to see um, and find people who at ideas and wisdom that um, resonates with all that Christ is. It, I, I have a problem with that. We're saying that in order to know Christ, you must be like this. Yeah. You know, that's the bit that I, I'm like, mm, that smells bad to me. But in terms of, in terms of Christ being, coming into somebody's life, coming into a culture, a society, a philosophy, and having his freedom that this is his land anyway and he wants it back you know not in a kind of empire way but and and I, I'm I'm very tired of people trying to force it into well in all, well basically what you saw in a kind of colonial empire mentality that you go out to parts of you know East Africa and you're going to see a church set up like somewhere you know in some little countryside um, church in England that's just not healthy no, or right but people are coping with it 
but is it is it allowing them to connect with God? I, I know that there are, you know, as I've said before, you know, really interested in languages and I have a home language and there are some things that can only be said in your home language. And I love that we have a faith that can is, is not limited to one language. What's your what's your home? What's your home language, Natasha? It's a, it's a form of Patois. My parents are from Barbados, so we have oh. a very much a Bajan and you need to, it's a Creole Creolized language. Right. But, um, it, you know, as as power is always around here. What's the difference between a language and a dialect? It's whether you've got an army to back it up, and in in the sense that, you know, when when you you're there are certain things that can only be said in that home language that you have, that um, God has the ability to walk into. And I love the fact that we have a faith that can be translated. It's not there isn't one classical language in with which you must understand. And, you know, there's, there's a lot, there, there are two languages that hide things from you and you have to dig into, but once you're translating, once you're washing yourself of the kind of mores of your own society and whatever, you can, you can look at that language and I'm be kind of, so many different things. There's like a, I always get a little bit nervous when people abstract, abstract the, the real person Jesus too much into some kind of cosmic idea. Now, I'm not accusing Richard Rohr of this. Like, I, I you know, I'm not saying it. However, the, the, the impulse to, to just abstract anything is where we get colonialism from. So the, the, the white picket fence churches in the middle of an African village, that is not coming from a Christianity that has the Jewish Jesus, the particular man in a time and place in view. That is a Christianity that has abstracted. It's just an idea of God. It's just a kind of a, a cosmic gas in the universe, really. That is a form of Christianity that has become so abstract that you can kind of imprint anything you want onto it. And what you see is colonial patriarchy imprints its power onto that religion, right? And the more you are very specific about this Jewish man, was doing this and this and this the less easy it is to become this overwhelming domineering culture right because if, if you have a jesus focused faith you can't start looking like a white anglo-saxon colonial or whatever right so i'm always getting this is why i don't i'm not accusing richard Rohr of colonialism but i am thinking like that don't be too quick to get rid of the particular nature of jesus don't don't be so quick to get rid of that yeah because there's some bad stuff that happens when you do that it, exactly and you have to remember he had a language that was a broken language that wasn't respected by anyone they that um you know it was an underdog situation and he's happily writing in the sand and we our lives are changed by that and he comes from a place called nazareth where nothing good comes from nothing so good comes, he, and that's part of it and a prophet is not welcome in his hometown and there's a whole lot of stuff about that we got to remember about the actual life of flesh and blood Jesus. But what was happening in, in Acts 3 that made you think of this, Chris? Why, what was it about the Acts 3 story and Peter healing the beggar? Or was it that he was healing in the name of Jesus? Is this? Oh, maybe I hadn't gotten as far as I was really still uh, immersed in the sermon and then the okay. audience yeah. of that sermon. Right. You know, because, I mean, and a lot of the sermons in Acts, like especially even Stephen, they're accusatory. They, you know, they're like, you know, you chose Barabbas instead of, you know, you, you, mm. you freed Barabbas and not Jesus. 
Uh, and, yeah. and so, and I, you know, so I, I, so there's, there's so much particularity. Yes. And then from that, we see the power of God on display, whether we talk about, you know, the, the tongues of fire and the healings that come afterward. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's all particular, but I was, I was thinking more about our salvation comes from a particular place. Right. Even though I can see it, you know, God working in all cultures and, and I, and I, I totally, I get what you're saying, Natasha. I, I think maybe I was raising concerns about about this abstracting of jesus of, of christ more as a concept than as a real person but I, it's it is like anything the more particular you are the more universal it becomes so if you focus on the life i mean it's a well-known storytelling technique as well that you focus on the life of one person and all of a sudden everybody gets to see themselves being reflected in that life i mean i found this and, and there's something true about that i just finished reading it's an old book now but uh, white teeth Zadie Smith. And, um, you know, it's a fantastic book. And, and I found myself like, she's, she's describing the life of this kind of young 13 year old black girl in living in North London. And she's got a white father and a, and a, a Caribbean mother and stuff. And, and, and I was finding myself like totally sympathizing and empathizing and seeing myself in the life of this, this character. And I thought, this is so strange. Cause if you were to put us like, there's not a single thing we have in common, right? If you were to put, do a list of checks. And yet by focusing on that single life, the author kind of opened up a whole big world for me. And, and I actually found myself, I saw myself in the story of this other person. So to me, there's like, there's something good even about still paying attention to that, to the time and the place where Jesus came from. I, I feel like it doesn't shut down the universal aspect of Jesus. I feel like it opens it up. I don't have a disagreement with that at all. Oh, good. So <laughs> you were shaking your head. I thought, <laughs> oh, no, what have I said? <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, you know, it's, it does. It's important that we know that it, it's this boy and, you yeah. know, it, it, this Jewish boy. And that is son. what Peter's saying. Like, that's part of this, this, these sermons and acts. It, it is to try and root what's happening in, in the man, Jesus, that you crucified or that did this or did that. And, that is part of the Acts message, which, by the way, remember I keep talking about is has a global from the Acts point of view. It has a global um, remit. I mean, we started last week. We talked about all the different languages that came, and earlier than that, we talked about like the fact that it's a global thing and it's being spread. The word of Acts is being spread to every nation known to the readers of Acts, right? So, the Book of Acts is not a parochial, tiny little vision. It's got from its point of view it has a global vision and it does it by talking about king jesus all the time natasha that's that's something that you wanted to bring up which is how the theology comes out of yeah what happened i i what, how did you phrase that again Stephen? What, what was the way of phrasing that uh what where where, it, where the theology comes after the experience i just love that because i'm like that that sounds like real human life and experience is that the way you've experienced that you have you seen theology coming off off after experience in your practice though yeah it's that you I, I i to me i'm like i became a christian you know thought this is who christ is you end up in a context where you're seeing the experiences of suffering and i wanted to say chris actually one of the biggest things that blows out all of the is that what their understanding of suffering is because that's what what each religion's understanding of suffering is um, is really helpful because that I, I think separates out um, 
those perspectives and the fact that Christ, this is the one man that looks suffering in the eye. And he, if you have suffered, he's looking you in the eye in that conversation. But that experience, and so the experience, which might include suffering, that might be watching other people suffering and then trying to apply what you've been taught about love, what you've been taught about compassion, what you've been taught about what it is to love your neighbor as yourself in that situation comes into action. But there, there's something about the detail because there can be some, you can be preached that in a particular way and you come away with a mis misconception of something. And, it, and it, it takes until you have that concrete experience for you to have to realign that to what reality actually is. You know, I think about God as, this is a God of reality, is a God of history, is a, a God of holes in hands. And it, in, in terms of having those conversations, it, it, if our theology doesn't make sense of the reality of the world. So you can, you can see it when you read in the Bible that Joseph and Mary are on the way to Bethlehem and he's looking for a way to get rid of her. That is reality because he knows how babies are made. <laughs> this lady is pregnant and it's, it, this is not, I know it wasn't me. So, you know, it takes a whole angel for him to get to a point. So he needs an interruption somewhere to help to adjust his, and that reality, that's what makes the Bible so real for me. That's what I, I, I'm, I'm thinking. But it, it, it's just odd that you can go along with, you can meet people who want to preach from just an idea, but they've had no proximity, no reflection on it, and then want to say that, and want to project that out onto other people. And I have to be honest, as a charismatic evangelical, sometimes that's very much how the approach that they're going for. And it's destroying our ability to have a conversation in the church yeah, about things that we don't, we're not in agreement on or we're, we're, we're still working through and you know instead of then thinking well we're demonizing different groups of people and saying well this is who you are and this is who you are when we could all just be I'm still thinking it through well a lot of it is that we 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 have this idea that sermons or theology is theory so that um or even the bible we'd be like oh the new testament is theory and then what we're doing is practice or or what what you're talking about when you write your books that's just theory or when you think about god that's theory but we're doing the real practice and i and i that really always bugs me because it is i mean certainly in the new testament it's the other way around it's the practice came first and then they were like shit what just happened i guess we better <laughs> we better talk about this we have to think about it right so it's thinking it's reflecting on an experience that already happened but they were interrupted like you said Natasha, like their lives were interrupted like joseph had to be knocked out of his life in order for things to start happening and the experience had to happen to him and this is what the book of acts is constantly it's experiences happening and then people figuring it out afterwards and applying their their history and their theology yeah chris so so i haven't listened to all the other episodes yet but that's that's the intriguing part of the rest of the book of acts right which is like things start to happen and they have to figure out okay what is what is this Jesus movement that we're part of? What, what does it look like now? Now that we have to make this decision and, and you know, this happens. So I think that's really actually fascinating about, about what Luke gives us in Acts. Yeah. I mean, it happens with healing a lot. Or oh, sorry, Natasha, what were you going to, were you going to talk about healing at all? By any chance? No, I was going to talk about the one, one of the words that got us together is the word gaslighting. And I hear that's it so right. much. 
okay in the way that we listen and don't listen to human experience or undervalue human experience oh, wow. and yeah. i was in a lecture where a, an anglo-catholic turned around a good friend of mine turned around and told mostly a charismatic evangelical group please remember that the bible didn't fall from the sky that's a different religion the bible was written by the church so if you undervalue human experience you may as well write off the bible itself and all that we have. And, and God clearly values human experience because that's the whole point of him turning up to experience being hungry, you know, tired, and ultimately to die. Human experience matters to God and doesn't mean that human experience is always perfect, but you cannot dismiss it. So in a, a, a Jesus community, you can't gaslight people. You can't treat people as if, we live in a modern, you know, with a modern mind that if you can't touch it or weigh it or whatever, it doesn't exist. Because how can you weigh the love of God? I was thinking about this in terms of the healing practices, because, uh, I mean, I think the three of us are all part of different churches that do practice healing in different ways or believe in it. And, and I've experienced it praying for other people and also in my own body. And But to me, I've noticed there's a difference. There's some people who like to talk about all the they, they go into the bible as if it's like a, a manual for how to heal how to do healing and then they go okay now that we've taught you how to do it go and practice it because it doesn't actually work because every single human is different and every situation is different and there isn't like a a manual or a formula for it and the new testament isn't a manual for healing it's a series of stories talking about individual experiences right which do, they don't actually join up all the dots it's a different it's things different things happen every time when peter is healing this beggar he's not setting the template for now this is exactly how you do it and say these words and do it this way it's a story of like in this moment this was what happened and i think peter was kind of engaged with the holy spirit he was listening to the still small voice and he did what he needed to do in that moment and so i i always find that if i'm around healing um cultures the the more healthy ones are the ones which are a bit more like willing to to sit with the individual or to, to love the individual in front of them rather than try and put them in the box, right? Say, well, you're part of the script now. Here, here's how we do these. And then actually reflect on what happened afterwards. So, so they, they stop and say, we prayed for you just now. Is anything happening? What's happening to you right now? How did you feel when we prayed? And they actually collect feedback, as it were. And they go, oh, that's interesting. Okay, we're going to keep going with how you felt or how you experienced. We're going to use that to inform how we continue to pray for you and to me i feel like that is an example of how charismatics can actually practice this where they're they're experiencing it first and then reflecting on the experience right rather than thinking of in theory which they now have to put into practice i don't know if that makes sense but i wanted to talk about healing because i don't talk about healing very much on this podcast but it's part of the the experience <laughs> of being a follower of jesus i think should be it should be should be part of it i do i think you're right in the sense that's how jesus but he has conversations he's um forgiving people for the things that you know situations that you know he has the intimacy enough to to know and we don't have that intimacy necessarily but you need to be alongside people to, yeah. to just hear the stories of, of what other brokenness that's going around and we are diamonds we've got beautiful faucets of ourselves that are just spiritual and psychological and emotional and all of these tap into what it means to be being human and and one connects it to the other so you know back to not, not be abstract 
you shouldn't abstract Jesus, the person, into the sort of universal gas, and you shouldn't abstract an individual person into some sort of vague idea, right? Yeah, oh, I friend. think God intended for them <laughs> to be here. Take them the incarnation. The incarnation is a very important fact in the universe. It means something that, that God became a person, I think. This, friends, is a good place to stop, I think, from this, from this point of view, but I'm sure we will all meet again soon. But until then, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Natasha. Bless you in your lives and your work in America and in London, and uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10thTheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.